Last weekend was so fun. For those of you that were able to be here, uh, we had an incredible time. Ernest and Tammy are, are some dear friends of ours. They were here, for those of you that weren't able to make it. And it was just a pretty spectacular weekend, to sum it up. It was just it was awesome. Um, I'm going to continue my series that I feel like I planned to be three weeks and has now turned into three months uh, today. Um, and I'm talking about something that is uh, very near and dear to my heart. This is one of my favorite uh, things to talk about, and I feel like the Lord has revealed some new things to me over the last two weeks. So I'm pumped to share with you today um, what I'm going to be talking about. So if you remember two weeks ago, if you weren't here, go ahead and you can go back and listen to it online. But I, I was talking about John the Baptist, and we were spending some time in John chapter 3, and talking about what John the Baptist's purpose was uh, in the body of Christ and how he, his purpose was truly to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And albeit a lofty purpose, a big purpose, he was able to step into that. Uh, so this week we're going to continue in the book of John going one chapter further. So if you all can turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, we're going to go through most of John chapter 4. So turn with me to John chapter 4. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. Um, feel free to read out of whichever translation you have. And just to set the stage, again, Jesus was with his disciples. They, his disciples were baptizing believers. That Jesus was coming. That the Messiah was coming. So now, Jesus is moving on from where he was. So we'll start in verse 1. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. I want you to remember that. That's an important verse. It's very short, not there yet, soon, Eliza. Uh, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. <clears throat> it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that, you, that asks you for a drink, you would, ask, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, 
give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have worked for, Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. I love that story. I love that story for a couple of reasons, and I'm going to dive into that. Before we do that, I want to give a little context. Eliza, if you can pull up the map now. Um, so, the area of Samaria. Oh, Can you all see it? It's a little fuzzy, but... Okay, so... Last week we we learned about well, we learned that John and his disciples were baptizing folks in this region, this area. <clears throat> Jesus is down in Judea and he needs to go to Galilee. Well, during that time there was a tiff, a pretty heavy tiff between the Samaritans and the Jews. So the Samaritans obviously lived in Samaria, the Jews were down in Judea near Jerusalem. And they didn't get along. And this wasn't something that just happened like, oh, we had an argument, we don't get along. This is years and years in the making. So obviously you can tell if you needed to go from Judea to Galilee, the easiest and fastest way is straight through Samaria. But often during that time, if you were a religious Jew, you would actually go around Samaria to get to Galilee. You wouldn't even walk through 
Samaria because you were at such odds with the Samaritans. And I want to give a little, before I get into the story, I want to give a little history. I love history. So I want to give a little history to how this happened. So about 600 years, anywhere between 500 and 700 years before Jesus came, uh, the area of Samaria was actually taken over by the Assyrians. What ended up happening, the Jews that lived in Samaria began to marry Assyrians. So now you have a people that is not true Jews. And the Jews in Jerusalem had a problem with that. They didn't think that the Samaritans should be intermarrying, interbreeding with people that aren't of their people group. And over time, that issue began to exemplify itself to the point where the Samaritans actually started to change how they believed. When it, in, in the original thought, in order to worship, you needed to go to Jerusalem if you were a Jew. Well, the Samaritans decided they didn't want to do that anymore and instead set up a temple on Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria. And they said, no, 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 we're not going to Jerusalem anymore to worship. We're worshiping here. Well, you can imagine if you are very strong, you have a strong opinion that Jerusalem is where you need to worship. If somebody comes at you and says, hey, actually, we're going to do it our way, you probably aren't going to receive that very well. You're going to be upset, especially if you hold very near and dear the, uh, the thoughts and, and the, the religious background that they had. So the, over about 500 years before Jesus comes, this disagreement just continues to amplify. So I think it's important historical context because... The fact of the matter is, Jesus had to choose to go through Samaria. Oftentimes, people who were of the same religious clout as Jesus and his disciples would go around, around Samaria, follow the Jordan River up to Galilee if they needed to go there. They wouldn't go through Samaria. So Jesus ends up at Jacob's well in Sychar on purpose. It was not on accident. And if you remember, before this time, Jesus' ministry was just getting started. Now, if you remember in John chapter 3, even in the start of John chapter 4, it says Jesus wasn't baptizing people. John was. So Jesus hadn't started his ministry yet. He was there. People knew who he was, but his disciples were the ones that were baptizing folks. So, that's a little historical context. The Samaritans, the Jews, they didn't get along. They didn't like each other. They didn't at all. And in fact, in the book of Luke, Jesus shares a parable. Uh, I'm just going to read it quick because I think it's also, again, really good context. In Luke chapter 10, verse 30, many of you are very well aware of this parable. He says uh, he's being questioned by a religious leader about who his neighbor is. And Jesus is talking to him because he says, well, Lord, what should I do? And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, well, who's my neighbor? Opening a can of worms for Jesus to be able to share who his neighbor is. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you ask a question and you don't like the answer? All of us, right? I can imagine that this religious person hearing that a Samaritan could do something well when there's this known conflict between them is not great. So in, in verse 30 in Luke 10, it says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho 
when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw, he, when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper that took, and said, Look after him. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Again, Probably not something that at the time that person was like, yeah. They're probably like, oh, that stings a little bit. I don't know, I, you know, like that, that stings. I don't like that person. I don't like them. So Jesus ends up finding himself at Jacob's well. Uh, and, and for those of you who know the Old Testament, Jacob is a very prominent person in the Bible. Uh, and this well is of important significance in the history of of God's people. So he ends up there, again, on purpose. He wasn't there because he, you know, just happenstance to be there. He was very particular about being there. So I want to highlight, first before we get into the story, I want to highlight the woman. We talk about Jesus being at the well. This woman is very interesting. She's someone who has to go and gather water in the middle of the day. And if you were just to read that, you wouldn't think much of it. But if you look at the historical context of what the people in that time did to gather water, oftentimes the, the uh, well was what we would call the water cooler of today. All the women would gather, usually in the morning or in the evening, and they would go and they would go gather water for their families, usually in some big jugs. You can imagine how heavy that would be. But they used that as their gossip time. You know, their time where they can go and chit-chat. Oh, did you hear about Lois? She did this. That was their time to chat as friends and discuss things that were happening in their community. It was their social hour. It was their chance to be with their friends, their community. Again, they would do it in the morning or in the evening. This woman is at the well at noon, the hottest, most high sun part of the day. Who would want to carry water when it's the hottest part of the day? That doesn't make sense. You would go in the morning or in the evening, right? It's kind of like when you're going to exercise. You either, if you're going to exercise outside, you probably work out in the morning or in the evening. You probably don't go work out at 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon unless that's your thing and you want to do that and sweat a lot, whatever. Typically you're planning your day to work out in the morning or in the evening. So it's the hottest part of the day. And notice that Jesus is also traveling during the hottest part of the day. You would think that if he was traveling and you know you can see on the map it wasn't like he was just walking from here to Hudson. It was a long walk right? You probably wouldn't want to travel in the hottest part of the day. But there he was, on purpose, at the well, 
the same time this woman gets there. The thing that I want us to think about, and I'll dive into this a little bit, why was the woman there in the middle of the day? What caused her to be there in the middle of the day? So let's continue on. <clears throat> so Sychar, can you pull up the map, map again, Eliza? So if you look at it, I know it's a little fuzzy. Sychar is here. The well is actually a distance outside of town. So again, they have to carry these water jugs a fair amount of distance. It wasn't like it was right in the center of town where you could go and make, it was, it was an event, like you had to go and do this. So I want to talk about the woman and why she was there at noon. The reason she was there at noon was because she wasn't welcome there in the morning or in the evening. She wasn't welcome there. Why wasn't she welcome there? Jesus talks about it. She wasn't welcome there because she had a past. She had been married five times, and the man that she was living with wasn't even her husband. She had a past. So she wasn't welcome there, partially because of herself, but also because of the people around her. If you remember that time, I don't think it was real, it wasn't highly thought of to be in that predicament, that situation. She had a past, and a, and a really ugly past. And because of that reputation, she was forced, both personally and from her community, to separate, to be on her own, to go and gather water by herself in the middle of the day. She wasn't allowed to be there with everyone else. And imagine you have a past. The people that are nearest to you know that you have a past. This is all hypothetical. I'm not saying this isn't the word, but imagine this. Put yourself in this woman's shoes. You have a past. Your community, everyone that is close to you knows that you have a past. And instead of embracing you, they say, no, no, no. We can't associate ourselves with you. You have to go and do it on your own. Imagine the hurt, the rejection, the shame that you could feel in that moment. So I find it really interesting that Jesus chose to start his ministry with her. Right? This person who was clearly not perfect. First, she was a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. Right? We've already discussed that. Second, she had a past. She had a bad reputation. She was well known for her past and her reputation. Yet Jesus saw her. So here they're at the well. Jesus starts talking to her, and he's thirsty. Naturally, it's the middle of the day. He just walked a long way. He's thirsty. He's at a well. That's why he's there. And he says to this woman, can you give me a drink? And before even like acknowledging that he was thirsty, she put up a wall, right? She says, why would you, a Jew... Ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink. Already, walls go up. Like, I don't know what's going on here. What, what is this? How many times do you know somebody who has a reputation that when you try to talk to them, they put their walls up? They have a past. And you try to talk to them, not even about what's going on. 
instantly they get defensive. Instantly. You might be talking about them totally something different. And that person, whoa, why, why are you talking to me about this? Why are you even talking to me? I have this past. They're living in that shame. And how often have you heard stories of somebody that walks into a church? Nobody sees them. Nobody recognizes them. And when they do see them, they put their walls up. Whoa! I remember a story. <clears throat> there was a guy in our church growing up. I don't remember his name. Charity might remember his name. Back in the er like late 90s, early 2000s, if you had tattoos, it was like, what is going on? You must be a rebel. So here this guy comes, and we had a church softball league. And he's got the, like the, the nose ring tatted all the way up both of his arms, kind of long curly hair. And I, I remember this feeling, because I would have been probably 9 or 10 at that time, maybe closer to, maybe a little like a teenager. And I grew up in western Wisconsin. There was not a whole lot of rebellion outside of like going and hanging out in a field after a football game happening in my hometown. It was, there just wasn't a whole lot going on. And I remember having this moment of going like, wow, that's a lot of tattoos. Wow, like why does, why is, like nowadays it'd be like, cool sleeve, bro. Like that's awesome. But back then it was almost this, whoa, do you belong here? Like he would come to church and oftentimes people would give him that like side eye like, ooh, who's this guy? Because of how he looked. Because of his past. Because of something that, who knows what happened. But instead of learning his story, people were so quick to say, whoa, not welcome here. Like it's a country club or something. You need to pay a membership to come here. And that's not what church is. When people come in, regardless of who they, what they look like, who they are, they should be welcomed with open arms. Because in here, this is where Jesus can do heart surgery. This is where Jesus can change lives. It can happen out there too. I'm not saying it just has to happen at church. But when people come into a church, you should see them and welcome them with open arms and be excited that they're there regardless of what they look like, regardless of what they talk like, regardless of what they smell like. Let's be honest, right? We need to have that same approach. Jesus saw this woman not for her past, because he, he reads a pretty long list, uh, laundry list of what she has done later in John chapter 4. He didn't see her as that person, though. He saw her as his daughter. He saw her as somebody he cared for and loved for and loved, loved so much and he chose her to start his ministry. How often do we second guess whether we are good enough to walk out what God has called us to do? How often do we think, man, I just don't, I don't know if I'm equipped to do ministry. I don't know if I'm equipped to speak into someone's life. We have those thoughts Jesus chose somebody that was so unexpected to start his ministry who immediately after he's done talking to her goes into town and brings back the town and says, here he is, the guy we've been waiting for. 
She wasn't afraid to evangelize because God and Jesus met her exactly where she was. He didn't say, well, before you go and talk to everyone, you need to clean yourself up. You need to do all of these things. No. He saw her and met her exactly where she was. So I would challenge you, when someone in your life, whether it's here or in public, if you interact with them, and maybe they're a little different than you, see them the way Jesus sees them, not the way that you see them. And I don't say that to condemn anybody. We're all human beings. It's a natural instinct to judge your situation, judge what, is, what could happen when you walk into a situation. It's natural, right? But I would encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit for guidance in that. Don't just jump to conclusions based off of what somebody looks like, talks like, sounds like, whatever it may be. I would also say that as we continue to look at this, this woman was living and walking in shame. Shame because of her past. Shame is an ugly thing. It makes you make decisions and do things that you would never do. Because she was living in shame, she went to get water at noon. Away from everyone else. Away from the safety of community. And you know what? Shame often keeps people from coming here. Shame from past decisions, past mistakes. Well, I'm not good enough to go to church. I'm not good enough to be here. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done this. We all have things we shouldn't have done. Shame should never keep you from coming here. If anything, it should bring you here. It should bring you here. God's called us out of shame. Jesus died on the cross so we don't have to live in shame. We don't have to live with walls built of past decisions, past mistakes, past regrets. Because Jesus took all of that when he died on the cross. He didn't just take certain things. He took all of it so we don't have to live in shame. Every day for this woman was a reminder of her shame. When she would get her, you know, get her, a lot of times they had like a, a wood pole that they would hang their water on. When she would be carrying that in the, in the heat of the day, every day it was a reminder of, I'm not good enough. I can't be with the rest of my people. I have to do this on my own. Shame can try and grip us and hold us in a place that we're not supposed to stay. We need to let go of it. Jesus took it so that way we could give him all of that. Not to stay there, but to move on. So, they continue their conversation. And Jesus keeps what he knows to himself at first. But instead asks first if he can have a drink. Now, you can imagine Jesus is walking a long distance. He probably doesn't have a rope and a bucket to draw water out of the well. He just doesn't. And the woman actually says that, that he wasn't equipped to gather water on his own. Thus, he needed to ask her for help. So let's look at John chapter 4, verse 9 real quick and kind of look into that conversation. So, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. 
How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew of the gift God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. She said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? I'll pause there. So, we know that she didn't know who was in front of her. She obviously didn't know who Jesus was. To her, he was just another man, another Jew, who probably didn't like her. So she gave this, she gave him an obvious answer. How do I get this living water? You don't have anything to get the water with. Like, how do I get this? In fact, she said, wait a minute. Why are you even asking me? You don't like me, right? Your people don't like me. Why are you even asking me? So, I want to draw your attention to how Jesus responds, because I think this is important. Obviously, this woman, she's, she's living in shame. She's got all the shame from her past decisions. We've discussed that. And Jesus responds, and he says, Listen, I don't really want water. I'm not here for that. I'm here for you. And if you realized who I was, I would give you something that no man can give you. I would give you living water. So Jesus is obviously talking about supernatural things at that point. He's moved from the physical, I'm thirsty, to the supernatural, I'll give you living water. The average person would be like, what is living water? And that is exactly how she responded. Like, what is this living water? Please, can I have this so I don't have to continue to come back here? at noon. So the woman interpreted everything that Jesus was saying in the natural. Jesus had already shifted to the supernatural. And he wants us to do the same thing in our own lives. He doesn't want us to live over here in the natural world where we are thirsty and hungry all of the time. He wants us to shift and say, Lord, you're my provision. You provide me exactly what I need in the supernatural. Not because Things in the natural don't exist. You still have to drive a car. You still have to go to your job. You still have to buy groceries. You still have to do those things. But what God is saying is, I can give you something that all of this in this world, the natural world, cannot give you. I can give you living water. I can sustain you for all of eternity. You're not going to find that in this well. You can look and look and look and look and look. You're not going to find it. How many of you ever watched the Indiana Jones movies? One of the best trilogies of all time. Don't argue with me. The last Indiana Jones with uh, the great Sean Connery, Indy is in search of the, the last crusade. He's looking for the cup that Jesus drank out of because this cup was supposed to give eternal life. And they go back into this cave and they see one of the knights that was sent there to protect this cup, this chalice, And this evil guy is in there and he drinks and he drinks out of the wrong cup and he ends up withering away and dying. It's pretty morbid. But Indy grabs the right cup. And it's very interesting as as the movie wraps up, they take the chalice where the, the cup was held, falls apart, it crumbles. And he has has a choice because this cup falls down the crack. If you haven't seen the movie, I won't ruin the ending. But the cup falls down this crack, and there's this woman that is so desperate to get this cup. To get the cup. 
she put all of her hope in this cup, that the cup was going to save her. The cup was her, this physical thing. And the cup ends up falling, goes away, the movie ends. And I say all of that, Jesus wants us to not forget that when he died on the cross, it wasn't just to do away with our sins. That's such an important part of it. But it was so that way he could establish a new covenant with us that was supernatural, that was eternal in nature, that doesn't require us to do a list of do's and don'ts. If you remember in the old law, it was all very much natural things. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. Make sure you do this at this time and this at this time. When Jesus came, he was saying, wait a minute. The law is important, but I'm establishing a new way. And he's telling her this like, if you only knew who I was, I would give you eternal water. I would give you eternal life that would never run dry, a well that would never run dry. So here she is. She's in the natural. He's in the supernatural. And she still doesn't quite, she still is like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Can I just have this living water? So I, and he says, well, go get your husband. And then thus begins the conversation of him, you know, reading off all of the things that she's done. If you continue on in the chapter, the disciples have a similar conversation with Jesus, not necessarily about water, but about food. So again, the disciples went to town to get food because they had been traveling. They were hungry. They come back and they said, hey, Jesus, eat something. And Jesus responds by saying, I'm good. I have food that you don't know about. And I can only imagine the response on the disciples' faces. Like, who brought him food? He's been out here by himself. Like, what in the world? Again, they're living in this like physical, natural world of we need to eat three meals a day and we're hungry and let's give Jesus some food. Again, Jesus wasn't there. He was being sustained by fulfilling what the Lord had asked him and called him to do. So he didn't need natural food. I can only imagine the look on their faces like, probably a lot of, huh? Because again, the disciples were living in that space of not necessarily understanding the difference between natural and supernatural. And we build up these walls in our life where we think the things over here, the supernatural stuff, is weird. We go, whoa, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Supernatural, what? Healing people? Signs, miracles, and wonders? That's, what? You don't think that when Jesus said, let there be light and there was light and he created all the world, that wasn't a crazy sign, miracle, and wonder? So why do we put all of these things in this box of, I, I don't know, I just, I want to stay over here. I'm comfortable over here. I'm comfortable being in control. I like control. I like to know what's going to happen to me. Over here, I lose that control. Stepping from the natural to the supernatural. Our God is a God of the supernatural. He was never created to be a God that just lived in the natural. We talk about this all the time, but God is absent of time. How can you be not supernatural if you're absent of time? If you can see the beginning and the end, you know exactly what's happening. 
And Jesus wants to move us from here over here. He wants us to live and flow and breathe in the supernatural. We shouldn't be surprised when we're at church and all of a sudden someone gets miraculously healed. We shouldn't be surprised by that. That should be normal. That should be normal. We should be expecting that stuff. We shouldn't be surprised when somebody comes in and says, I was addicted to drugs and I just put it down the next day and it was done. Why is that such a surprise to us? Jesus can do the miraculous. Look at just his story of what we know that he did. He changed water into wine. He healed people. People were cascading. He fed not just 5,000, probably close to 10,000 people with two loaves or two fish and five, five loaves of bread. That's not supernatural. We have to get out of this mentality of, I like my comfortability. Don't get me wrong. I like a lazy boy. Give me that and some football and I'm good. I would much rather have this though. The lazy boy can stay there. It's not going anywhere. But I would much rather live in the supernatural. And Jesus is calling us to live in the supernatural. He ends by sharing with his disciples, you didn't do any of the planting, but you get to harvest. And you know what? The ground is ready to be harvested. Now, was he talking about an actual field? Like, oh, there you go. Go pick that grain. No. He was talking like, the time has come now for me to start my ministry, for us to start flowing in the supernatural. And you know what? Even over the course of Jesus' ministry, his disciples still didn't always get it. Jesus would say things like, eat of my body, drink of my blood. If you're living over here, you're like, what are you talking about? That's weird. If you're over here, you're like, yes, I get it. He wants us to live in that space. And you know what? He told that to the disciples that it's ready for harvest. And I really believe that we are moving into one of those harvest times that we are moving into this place, that we need to be prepared and ready for God to call us to do things that we are uncomfortable with, to preach and to ask and to do things that He is going to do through us that we would never be able to do on our own. And to embrace it. To not run from it, but to embrace it. To say, yes, God, I am here. I am willing. I am ready. And I want to move and flow in what you have happening. It talks about before Jesus comes back that there's going to be a great awakening. We were talking about this on Thursday. I am so excited for that. It's, you know, like in the natural, you can be like, whoa, that's going to be crazy. Over here, you're like, yes, can we have churches flooded with people? And can we have people crying out to Jesus that have never done it before and coming to Jesus like they've never done it before? seeing a wave of revival spread across the world that is so exciting and so just seeing God move and do things that we haven't seen in generations, that gets me pumped, excited, because we get to be a part of that. How cool is that? We get to be a part of the greatest revival of all time. We get to be a part of that. I, I just can't get, I'm so excited for it. 
because we're going to see things that it's like we were talking on Thursday. We're going to see people who had an amputated arm and it's going to grow out. We're going to see these crazy signs, miracles, and wonders that make you go, in the natural, that is impossible. There is no way that is possible. But over here, we, we serve a God in the, that lives in the supernatural. He can do anything. And we need to start understanding that he can do anything. This woman finally had a revelation of who Jesus was. It took some convincing. It took some time. But she finally was able to get past herself and see Jesus. And sometimes that's the thing that holds us back the most, is getting past ourselves. And the things that we build up, that we put up to see Jesus. He's always there. He's, he might even be talking to you, but you've built up these walls that you need to break down, pull down. This woman is somebody who in, in biblical history is very prominent, and yet she lived a very unprominent life. She wasn't equipped to go into the ministry. She wasn't perfect. By all accounts, she was kind of an outcast. She was somebody that nobody looked to. She wasn't a mentor to people. Yet God chose to use her. So the next time the Lord's asking you to do something, and you go, I just don't know if I'm equipped to do that. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I'm worthy of that. You know what? You might not be, but I do know somebody who is. And we serve him. He's the king of kings. So while you might put up your own wall of defenses and think, I can't do it, think of this woman. She was a woman that everybody counted out. And nobody expected to do anything. In fact, I'm sure when she ran back into town to gather people, people were like, oh, whatever. Not listening to you. And they missed out. Because God had a plan and a purpose for her life that was very specific. And it just goes to show you that Jesus can use anyone. He can use your two-year-old. He can use your 90-year-old grandma to speak into your life. If you allow him to move in your life. If you allow him to move in your life.